0: Welcome back to Ars Arcanum, an exploration of Brandon Sanderson's Cosmere. I'm Nora, I'm joined by Mark.
1: Hi, I'm Mark. And Autumn. Hi, I'm Autumn. Boats? Raining? I didn't do any of it. <laughs> Your friend is crazy. <laughs> I mean, I read Lord of the Rings and Mistborn, but... Wow. Like... we'll shut up about those. Yeah. <laughs> I, and I read Hunter Hunter, but I talked about that on Gotham, so... That book's good. I hear good things. Uh, yeah. I read some books. What'd you read?
0: Uh, I read Foundation by Isaac Asimov.
1: You really yeah. got his ass on Twitter.com.
0: Yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and I liked it enough that I bought the next two that are on their
2: way right now. <laughs>
3: so, uh, I'm
0: we'll glad you're
2: enjoying uh, Foundation. I... I did not like it very much when I read it as a kid. Mm -hmm. uh, Because I felt like there weren't um, characters in it very much.
0: I've heard this. I've heard people say this. Um, I had a great time with it. And I, I did want it to be more, like... It's a very detached and a very, like, expanded perspective of time. Um, I guess I'll, like, lay out what it is real quick. Um, Basically, this guy is like, hey, I can predict the behavior of large groups of people using mathematics. And um, also, this means that I'm, like, pretty sure that our galactic empire is about to fall. The empire doesn't take too kindly to hearing this. Um, But eventually they allow this guy to set up this foundation at the edge of the galaxy um, to sort of safeguard knowledge and, like, history and science and stuff hmm. so that when society falls, if it does, um, they'll be able to, like, build a foundation for the future to build on. So hmm. to lessen the coming age of darkness and barbarism between empires hmm. from 30,000 to 1,000 years. <laughs> it's a very expanded view of history in
1: time. <laughs> what? That's just a crazy sentence you said. I don't know what to tell you.
0: Um and so the first book has is just five short stories. It deals with three time periods mostly. Um well, I guess it's five time periods but two of Two sets of two are, like, closer together. Um, and it just shows, like, um, certain crises that this, uh, guy, Harry Seldon, has, like, vaguely predicted. Like, mm-hmm. oh, something's gonna happen here, but I think you will have, like, managed everything to where there's only one really obvious way out, and I think you'll be okay. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, it was a really interesting book, um... Uh, the there's a apple tv uh series based on it that Mm -hmm. happened this year um that seems way different um well tv shows have characters
1: generally so
0: well they also have like action scenes and drama in places where in foundation a lot like there's there are a couple scenes that are very tense and very like Very cool, but a lot of scenes involve people talking about action scenes that happened off-screen
2: thousands of light-years away. (laughs) I'm starting Um, to see why you like this so much. Why is that? (laughs) I think that uh, people talking about wild shit that happened thousands of light-years away is something that you would be interested in.
1: (laughs) That's Norocor to me.
0: Um... So yeah, I've enjoyed it. It's kind of got some interesting parallels to the other book that I am currently reading that I'm taking a little longer on, uh, Canticle for Leibowitz, as recommended by Grace, Mm -hmm. in that the first sort of stage of this um, reintroducing knowledge and technology to the world comes through this religion where all of the people who learn how to manage the technology that everyone uses and learns how to repair it and maintain it um, are all a part of this clergy and is part of this religion that is being spread. And the, through this religion is how they are spreading this, um, I guess, advancement to back to the world. Um, and that is only the first phase. They're going to change how this stuff is is spread in the future but uh it's it also has a very because it's such a broad and zoomed out perspective he doesn't spend much time on things like why is the Gal- the, the galactic empire worth bringing back um yeah. and if it requires such intervention why is something else why is some other mode of like government or mode of existence for humanity not somehow superior uh, because he has as like I've only read the first of these books but it certainly seems like there's just a like taken as uh, taken for granted that like there is a sort of progress to humanity and a sort of like like civilization like the video game civilization style (laughs) yes Like advancement that is good and will be good,
2: and and like objectively measurable, right? Yes, that like one society is definitely more technologically and like socially advanced than another.
0: Yeah, um, which is interesting and also kind of interesting that it's not unpacked at all because he treats that those assumptions with the same sort of like, okay, I'm moving out that out of the way to tell this like, bigger story that he does with, like, how do the ships work? They just hyperjump. That's how travel works. And I appreciate not having someone sit me down and try to impress me with their, like, fake faster-than-light travel the way that Christopher Paolini does.
2: Sure. Um,
0: <laughs> I don't need to be impressed by someone's, like, technical or scientific knowledge to enjoy a nice book. Um, but it is funny that, like, that approach is also being taken to the whole premise. Um. But I'm interested yeah. to see where these go. From here. Yeah. This is I... also the 1st first... mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Go on. I was going to say this is the only, this is the first time I've read Asimov as well. Yeah. Uh, I think this guy might know how to write
1: a, a word or two.
2: <laughs> He's definitely got some skills, for sure. Yeah. Um I do, do think Do it's... you
1: think there are things that Brandon Sanderson could could do that uh Isaac Asimov yes. couldn't do?
2: I mean, yes, could? no, that's definitely yes. true. <laughs>
1: that's <laughs> definitely true.
2: Yeah, um, like I would I would say Brandon Sanderson is way better at writing a romance than mm-hmm. Asimov. Speaking broadly, I don't think he was an Elantris. Um uh, <laughs> But I think already in what we read today for *Miss yes. it's visible that uh, Brandon's got some some worthwhile like romantic relationship writing chops. He can make it compelling, uh, mm. and I've read some of what might be called uh, Asimov's most like the, his work that is the horniest, I guess, has the mm-hmm. most like sex and wrote romantic relationships in it. Mm -hmm. And I do not think it's very good.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Uh, There's a lot of Asimov out there. God,
2: yes. He's one of those science fiction writers who just wrote and wrote and wrote and wrote and wrote like continuously from probably when he was like 16 to when he died.
0: Yeah. And he died in like the 80s? No, he was writing in the 80s. When did he die? I think he might have died in the 80s. (laughs)
2: I know he died in 92, because uh, I lived in Newton, and he lived in Newton towards the end of his life, and uh, I was a huge, huge Asimov fan as a kid, and when I found out the year he died, I was like, God, we never could have met. And now I'm like, well, that's a good thing. But, Yeah. (laughs) yeah, I happen to know that tidbit. Actually, there's another fact about his death that's like i guess just sort of an interesting fact although it's a little bleak um which is that he uh actually died of aids uh after a blood transfusion oh hmm. yeah like he was one of the few people who actually did get it that way because you know it was before people knew that that was possible um Hmm. which is just like a wild thing for me that like He's one of the very few people to whom that is true.
3: Hmm.
0: Yeah. Um, It's interesting to me about those books that I've started is that this trilogy
1: is from... God, when is Foundation? Uh, Foundation is... I have no idea. I think it's the
2: 50s. I think Foundation might be a fix-up novel. I think it might have originally been... Yeah.
0: Uh, but then he comes back, okay, so this first trilogy, each one is shorter than the last, as as according to, like, page counts on Wikipedia. Um, and then they're all, like, the first one is around 240, and it gets shorter from there. Uh, and then he comes back in the 80s and writes two prequels and two sequels, and not a one of those is under 400 pages. <laughs> <laughs>
2: Oh, the passage of time. <laughs> <laughs>
0: this is what happens when you're a sci-fi
2: guy, I feel like. Yeah. I mean, I think it's kind of a change in the genre. Um, mm, mm-hmm. I think there was, like, a shift toward longer books. I don't know. That's me firing from the hip a little bit. I don't happen to know any, like, historical facts about that. But it just feels to me like something that's true.
0: Yeah. I mean, it feels <clears> true just on the face of it if I think about the fact that, like, The Martian wasn't serialized.
3: Mm-hmm.
0: as, like, just a, a pull an, a, an example out of my ass of, like, I don't know where serialized stories exist in 2021 if they do in, like, any popular capacity.
2: Well, Unjust Depths is that. But I think you're right. There's not a lot of that. And it in order oh, yeah. to do something yeah. like that, I think you have to do what Unjust Depths does and be kind of a weird, independent internet publishing thing. I yeah. don't think there's, there's no... like...
1: There's no magazine that's out here like commissioning, no magazines like a gun. No, no, no. Magazines used to be publications, uh, like somewhere to, like in the neighborhood of two hundred pages that were printed on cheap paper, um, and you would get a bunch of different stories in them. Magazines. Yeah, I don't. I'm not. I don't there were understand. there were pictures. There were magazines about all sorts of things. Now we there just were... go to all Twitter for all of it. Oh, okay. Yeah.
2: <laughs> yeah i I've, I've, i was in fact thinking about how like there isn't really a publishing avenue for like uh serialized like episodic science fiction narratives uh and i was specifically bemoaning this because of uh finishing reading um the causal angel uh mm. but i can talk about that later
0: i only have one other book to talk about you also
1: liked that book a fair bit. Though.
0: I liked it. I also, both of these books this week, I gave five stars on goodreads.com because uh-huh. they were goodreads. No shit. Um, the other one I read is The Citadel by A.J. Cronin, which is a f- pretty big departure from my normal sort of subject matter, I guess. It's a book about a doctor who shows up fresh out of medical school to be an assistant to this other doctor in this Welsh village, gets there, finds out, oh, that guy is recovering from a stroke, might never regain the use of, like, the left side of his body. Mm -hmm. So when I signed up to be this guy's assistant, I'm actually secretly just taking over his practice, even though on paper he's the one doing all of the stuff and like getting all of the money and et cetera. Um, And it goes through like basically it's four books, like separated into four books, but one of the books is like 20 pages um, to be the four different stages of his career from working in this village, getting married and moving to another village where he has a different sort of dynamic. It's It's a bit of a bigger town, And as he, like, increases in um, success and, like, wealth, he goes from, like, being very poor to, like, becoming a person that, like, he starts off being, like, this very straightforward guy who's like, okay, I'm going to show up in this mining town. I'm going to um, get these people who are asking me to sign these certificates to let them not work, and I'm going to examine them. Oh, they're not actually sick right now. So they can go back to work and that causes a whole mess of trouble for him because like the old doctor would just like sign off on whatever anybody wanted. Um, to as he becomes more rich and successful, he becomes like, well, I mean, I guess there's no harm in giving these harmless uh, injections to these rich people for their money. Mm-hmm. It makes them happy and it gives me money and that's good. And so he just starts becoming this different person as he amasses wealth in the medical practice and um,
2: a, it sounds like he kind of becomes like a like a guy who's selling supplements like he's giving people, oils he's giving people these medical treatments that are basically harmless. But also, they think it's going to do something to their health, and it's not going to do anything. You know what I'm saying? That's yeah. That's what supplements
0: it, are to me. It's like that, and also it's like he helps. He like calls this other doctor out to see this patient who's a very rich woman. And it's a very simple thing, and he gets, like, a bunch of money off the guy from it because the guy's like, oh, well, we charge them a lot. Here's your cut for helping me. And he's like, oh, I just stood in the room. Wow, this is great. I didn't actually do anything. And then he was like, also, I'm going to take out our tonsils next week. So if you'll stop by then, I'll give you a cut of that, too. And it's like, I don't know that those tonsils need to come in, but I guess we could take our tonsils out. <laughs> and uh, it has a lot of things like that as he, like, um changes in this way and experiences difficulties in his marriage because of this and uh it all comes together in the end in a very very compelling book it sounds good yeah uh this book is the inspiration for the nhs in
2: the uk Hmm. i guess that kind of makes sense if it's all about like how essentially the profit motive uh turned yeah. to good doctor bad
0: and uh, also this guy along the way has all these ideas for how to set up a better system for doctors and in the end like by the end of the book he has like reckoned with the changes that have that he's like made to himself and he's he tries to, he goes back to his two um his good friends who are like more like he used to be um mm-hmm. One of whom is definitely gay and, like, in love with him. <laughs> um, he gets drunk and begs him not to marry a woman at one point. So, I don't know how else I'm supposed to read that.
2: That's just, that's just bros being dudes. Just bros.
0: Please, God, never. This guy also is, like, has a wife in another part of the country, and they, like tried to be married for a while but eventually they just separated they didn't get divorced or anything of course but they've they're just been separated for years
3: Mm -hmm.
0: so um i had a great time with this book i picked it up off the shelf in the bookstore because it looked cool and uh that's all (laughs) and i had a great time so Uh, Hmm. i don't do you know what word doesn't appear in this book even one time what citadel <laughs> i don't know why it's called the citadel there's no citadel in the book
2: That's very what's funny the,
1: what's the name of the the protagonist uh andrew manson okay i just asked because i was on audible looking at this author's stuff just to see if the citadel was available there's also because the bbc <sighs> Has always produced Radio Dramas, seemingly, and seemingly mm-hmm. still makes Radio Dramas because they did a, a series of seemingly one of his other characters who's also a doctor, and they've got David Tennant playing this doctor character. But I did
0: sometimes imagine David Tennant as this character, but specifically the version of him from that other TV show that you were watching clips of, where he's that oh, yeah, angry Scottish cop. Yeah, Broadchurch. Yeah. <laughs> because he's a Scottish doctor. Mm-hmm. showing up to a, this, these welsh towns um i just got this the same impression because he's like a little bit grumpy a little bit like standoffish but yeah great book um and then i looked it up and it, uh, i looked it up after i read the, the first paragraph just to see if like this was a known thing or just some obscure book from 1937 or whatever uh and it turns out a lot of other people also think it's a great book <laughs> um so yeah Uh, I've got a whole... People should go to my Goodreads to keep up with my book stock, because I do try to keep that up to date. Mm -hmm. Uh, I've got, like, six books on my to-read list. I'm reading four right now.
1: We got our library cards, and I checked out 2001 A Space Odyssey. My to-read list on Goodreads is a mess, because it's got, like, 300 books, and I only want to read, like, six of them.
0: You should change that.
1: I should change it.
0: My to-read list is, like, stuff I'm actively about to read, like the next two foundations the first wheel of time uh i think i have a lot of on there but i'll probably take that off cuz it's just, the moment's past.
1: i i'll i'll put anything on there if i look at it for 6 seconds and think oh that sounds interesting no no um, i mean literally i'm going to read this soon
2: i do not keep any kind of to read list i don't i don't like good reads um very much so, I, like, I don't.
1: I like Goodreads for keeping track of what I have read, and, like, I like keeping track of, like, I have a goal of reading 50 books this year, and I hit that goal. But... Sorry,
0: did you just type Nora into the search in Goodreads? Yeah,
3: so I'm trying to
1: find you. <laughs> are we friends with Goodreads? I'm trying to find this out. Friends with Grace? Yeah, we are. Okay, yeah, we are.
2: cool. There was a, a period of time last year where I was keeping a very detailed. uh, you know, what I, like, read and watched and whatever spreadsheet, but it really just, I mean, there was some, there were a couple months where I was finding it genuinely rewarding, but I think ultimately I just found it stressful. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't know that I don't know that I'm ever really going to look at it again, you know? I like, I def- I like
1: having Goodreads and letterboxed for it. I don't like, I tried keeping a spreadsheet of my own, and I spent too much time, like, fretting about formatting i like having yeah. it on a different website where it's like <clears> not my responsibility but it's also a function of like i have podcasts where like export audio might do a like top 10 books that we read this year or a, or a you know top five video games or something to where i need to like be able to remember this sort of stuff um and, like, yeah if it I'd wasn't for the podcast i wouldn't do it if
0: i'm never gonna think about red harvest again if, if i hadn't written it down that i read red harvest this year i'd never remember it
2: yeah yeah it I, think that, lost to me. I think that i think that my feeling about this i definitely like the idea of having like a record of everything i read in a given year like it's appealing to me and i'm sure there are times when i would use it and i would be like oh man this is so interesting to think about you know what year i read this book or whatever but i guess i think that if a book or a show or anything else is meaningful to me if it makes some kind of impact on me i'm gonna remember it when i encounter other interesting things that somehow interact with it right so mm-hmm. what i mean by that is uh if if there are interesting kind of if it's interesting to me to remember a book you know on a level that's more than just like knowing that i read it but something like what you ex- something like the example you gave of wanting to make a sort of, like, list of favorites um, or wanting to compare it to other books in the future. I guess I just have confidence that if it's important, I'll remember it, and if I don't remember it, it probably wasn't that important.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I have a terrible memory.
1: (laughs) That's probably a healthy attitude to have. I just have a terrible memory. God-awful. Yeah. Mark, you
2: read any books this
1: week?
2: Yes, I did. Uh, so like I said I finished the Causal Angel so that means I'm done with the books that Hanu Rai and Amy wrote in that setting, that trilogy which doesn't have like a great name, the Jean Le Flambeur books, I guess. Um, Le
0: Flambeur books. We you did said that before. <laughs> yeah. We established
2: this. This is canon. <laughs> Just cuz you say something once doesn't mean that I accept it as a neologism. <laughs> Anyway, um I thought it was a great book. Uh I definitely kind of feel like this is one of those series where the middle entry is not the strongest one or is 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 the weakest one. Although I still think that second book is really good, but having finished all 3, I'm definitely like, yeah, the first and third are better. Um and I guess I don't have a ton to say about, like, you know, the sort of plot events of the book, because the whole thing as it goes, the, the beginning, I think I've said this before, the beginning of uh, e- books two and three is, like, building directly on the wild shit that happened at the climax of the previous book. So there's really no way to talk about even the premise of the later two books. Um, and the thing that I guess I have been thinking about a lot is how much I wish that I could have gotten a serialized narrative in this setting about these characters. Um, Because, like, these are definitely characters, and this is definitely a setting that would be well-suited to just telling a bunch of relatively short and episodic stories. Um, Like, if this... If... Hanu Ryan had been publishing in the 50s, he absolutely would have done just, like, a ton of Jean Le Thunberg short stories. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I don't know that that would have been, like, a, like, better than the novels that we got, because in the 50s, like, that's what it would have been. And then they would have mm-hmm. been collected into a fix-up novel, but it wouldn't have necessarily... I, I would say that these novels have quite elegant structure, um, and, you know...
1: Yeah, that's something <laughs> that might get lost in serialization.
2: Yeah, but at the same time, it does feel like this framework is one that I can easily imagine just, like, a ton of stories in. And, um, unfortunately, there's almost no possibility of Ryan Yami writing more of these books because the things that happen to the setting along the way, like, uh, the solar system does not exist in the same way it it is not like a sort of uh is not the same kind of space at the end of book three as it was at the beginning of book one mm-hmm. um and so like when i imagine the idea of serialized stories in this narrative it's sort of like well they would be fit in like the interstices between the books or something um i guess what i'm saying is that i i wish there was a way for this series to have something that actually feels like the Arsene Lupin stories or like Lupin the third where you just have some crime adventures. Yeah. Um, but, uh, yeah, I guess that's what fan fiction is for. I haven't really looked into the fan fiction culture for this book. I am not expecting great things uh, <laughs> because fan fiction for novels doesn't tend to be all that, uh, t- common. Um, hmm. And these are relatively recent novels and they're hard science fiction, which I think is not a genre that fanfic people tend to be super fond of. Yeah. Um, so I haven't looked, but I'm not anticipating anything much. I did look trying to find like fan art of these things on t- Tumblr and I found nothing, um, which was very disappointing. Aww. That's another one of the reasons, like, when Ben and I have talked about how we want this to be a serialized narrative, the thing that we actually really want it to be is some kind of, like, anime, but not an anime that would actually be made in, like, 2021, because they don't make (laughs) that many, like, episodic crime-adventure anime these days, right? Um, but there was a time, I guess in the 90s, when that shit was incredibly hot, so, uh, yeah, it would be so nice if there was a Quantum Thief anime. Uh, but that's never to be. So I'll just live in hope, I suppose.
0: <laughs> you can always listen to J-pop and imagine it.
2: <laughs> yeah, yeah, that'd be pretty cool.
1: That's um, true of most things in
2: life.
1: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you could listen to J-pop and imagine something cool happening.
2: <clears throat>
1: yeah. You can imagine the OP. Oh, this is the part. I, where the I've... silhouette of him
0: is like on the right oh believe
2: you me i've imagined the op (laughs) uh that's been a topic of discussion um yeah we've talked about like what sort of visual motifs from the book would be like carried over into the op uh it's definitely gonna have like some sort of cute uh tricks like almost like some of the like bond film openings where it'll be like Somebody, like, pointing a gun to the side and then the camera swings around he's pointing at the viewer and there's a bunch of, like, weird silhouettes. That type of thing. Um, you- I think that would be a really good fit for this because, like, Jean pointing a gun at himself is such a, like, key image. Uh, pointing a gun at another person who is also himself, to be clear. Not like, uh, not like Persona characters do where they point a gun in their heads. Um, but rather two Jeans facing off. In a gunfight. It's such an image for the series. And that is such a great image for an anime OP. (laughs) (laughs) (sighs) Um, The other thing that I've been reading. um, Basically the next read aloud. After Ben and I finished The Causal Angel. Is The Warrior's Apprentice. uh, Which is arguably the first book in the Vorkosigan saga. Um, This is a matter that you can debate. Because first of all. There was another book that was published the same year. Um, Like, Bujold wrote two books about this uh, setting, about these characters, and published two of them at the same time. Um, So it's basically just as legitimate to say that Shards of Honor is the first book. Um, And then also, uh, Bujold is one of those people who thinks you should read works, or at least she had advised that you should read her works in internal chronological order, which is truly absurd for this series, because ah, another she, ha- <laughs> she has written, she wrote a novel that is set in the setting, like hundreds of years before all the other novels. It has none of the same characters. It's even like set on, uh, I don't think it's set on a planet. I think probably it's like a space station, but the place that it's set is like, quite distant from most of the rest of the setting like i think there's one other Gorkosigan book that's set in that place like hundreds of years later but other than that it's so weird to say that you should read them in internal chronological order and say you should start with that total outlier Um, i
0: did start with magician's nephew when i tried to read narnia that's That's also insane
2: (laughs) i know i I, thought it was
0: weird and then i went on to the next
1: one i was like oh this is the movie (laughs)
2: <laughs> I think that I might have done that same thing with The Magician's I, yeah. Nephew.
1: I did the same thing.
2: It, they they trick you. They they make up the box set in a way that makes it look like that's what you're supposed to do. It's not good. They put the numbers in there, too.
0: They say that's the first one. They're wrong. Yeah,
2: no, it sucks. It's a really annoying thing when uh, authors and publishers do this, because they're just fucking wrong. Um, I think I it said, betrays... Go on.
0: I, I said Moorcock. That's not really true. A lot of readers say that. Moorcock is like... Pick up whichever Elric book you have. Yeah. That's the one you I, should start with. <laughs> I long think as there you are something.
2: I think there are series where that's totally reasonable advice. Um like mm-hmm. I was thinking the other day about uh Terry Pratchett's work, especially his Discworld work, and especially the Discworld books that are about witches. Um, because I was talking to Kim. And uh I you know, the, the witches' books do have like they If you read Terry Pratchett's work in publication order, you will certainly see shifts in his, like, interests and his writing skill. And you'll also see kind of, I guess, themes develop through Discworld. But at the same time, um, the internal plot chronology of Discworld is really not very important for the most part. And I, for example, the the first Witches book that I read was Witches Abroad, which is extremely framed as a sequel to uh, Weird Sisters. Um, Like, it's very much like, okay, we met these these characters in Weird Sisters and we kind of learned what their dynamic is, and now those characters and their dynamic are going to go on a road trip and be in a new context. Uh, But the character writing is strong enough that you just pick up who... uh, Granny Weatherwax and Nanny Aug and how they relate to each other and like the ways that their comic beats are going to work and the things that are actually kind of core to their characters that are like real and meaningful that aren't just jokes um you get all that really quickly because he's really good at that shit <laughs> and so I think that reading Terry Pratchett books in whatever order you find them is very legitimate even yeah. though you'll find a lot of reading order guides out there in the internet well and also <laughs>
1: like I feel like um, there are 41 Discworld books. According, Oh, yeah.
2: Like,
1: if you insist on reading Discworld in order, that's a great way to just get yourself to not read Discworld, I feel like.
2: (laughs) Well, if you're 10, um, and they have all of them at your local library, reading all the Discworld books is a great way to spend your time. But, uh, you know, not all 10-year-olds have all those books at their library. Um, Yeah.
1: We definitely uh, had some, but I never I never got into Discworld.
2: Yeah, I, I was very into Discworld for a time. I think I have, in certain ways, cooled on it, because I think some of the jokes don't age very well, unfortunately. Um, I feel like I tried it once
0: and didn't want to keep going. But also, I have this memory about Douglas Adams at the same <laughs> time, and I could be confusing them... Or maybe
3: mm.
1: I'm not. I I, can... I got very into Hitchhikers briefly, and I think around that time I was like, maybe I should try Discworld, and I was like, there's forty-one of those books. I'm not going to get into it.
2: Um, yeah, I I I will say they're basically all pretty breezy reads. They're not yeah. super long, and and they're they're written in a very like conversational and engaging style. Um, they move. Uh, and I th- I think there are some things about Discworld books that are, first of all, there's some parts of them that are genuinely just fucking funny. Like, he's a good comic writer. Mm-hmm. Um, even if I think some of his jokes feel dated and uncomfortable, um, mm. and, uh, also, like, I do think that these are books that have a lot of heart, like, especially for being, like, parody, like, fantasy parody books, um. There's just a fair amount of, like, real feelings that I have about those characters. Mm-hmm. Um, and there are, there are passages in Discworld books that I think are genuinely, um, meaningful statements about human life and how people have to live. Um, <laughs> you know, they're not, uh they tend to be quite straightforward about what they are saying thematically um and sometimes it's a little didactic um but i think i think terry pratchett i don't know expressed some meaningful things in discworld i don't know why i'm talking about discworld sorry you're good <laughs> <laughs> i it's been on my mind um because of this one conversation and also because uh, i'm probably going to watch the uh bbc hogfather special soon um, because it's a seasonal movie. Um,
0: hmm. We've got a seasonal film of our own to watch this weekend. <laughs> uh. You I, love it every time. You're just like, oh, this is exciting. and then we when we do it, you're like, oh, I'm having a good time with my I'm, I'm
1: gonna get fucked, blazed this time. <laughs> <laughs> um. I My only bitterness towards the Star Wars Holiday Special is that I have so many Christmas movies I genuinely love, and this is the one that we watch. We watch Star Wars, too, every year. <laughs> it's not a Christmas it movie. It is for us. <laughs>
0: um, <laughs> Our family had to watch Elf too many times, and I've soured on Christmas movies in general.
1: I just, I just like three different Christmas Carol movies, and I wish that you would watch them with me, and you never do. I literally watched Muppet Christmas Carol with you last year. Did you? Yes.
0: I thought you were standoffishly like, On Christmas
1: after Star Wars. I thought you were standoffishly like, no, I will not do that. I misremembered. I'm sorry. I told you that guy was hot. He is hot. You're right. Okay. Yeah.
2: (sighs) I think I'm also going to watch Muppets Christmas Carol soon, which I've never seen, actually. I basically never watched the Muppets as a kid. Um, Anyhow. I uh, never
0: saw Muppets as a kid, aside from Yoda. (laughs)
2: yeah so right i've been reading the warrior's apprentice um and uh this is certainly what can be said is that it's the first book about miles Vorkosigan. uh and i talked a little bit about these books like a year ago when i reread Mm. the mark books probably over a year ago anyway but um yeah these are books that i was super into as a teen and i guess in like early college um and eventually I kind of fell off of them. Uh, I think by the time, by, like, 2013, 2014, um, I was starting to feel like the the ones that she was currently publishing at that time were not as good. Like, her her kind of, you know, some authors, they kind of reach a peak, right? And then they continue to publish after that, and their work isn't as good. Um, and I felt like Bujold had reached that point. Yeah. Um. Which is, you know, unfortunate to think about, but also I guess it's just kind of inevitable, right? At some point someone yeah. writes their best book. Um And The Warrior's Apprentice is basically about this guy, Miles, who lives in a uh a spacefaring culture that only like attained contact with the rest of the galactic civilization and got got like the technology to go to space a couple generations ago, in a uh, bloody war where, like, an outside civilization discovered them and, like, tried to invade them. And uh, Miles' people, the Barrierans, uh, pushed their invaders back and very quickly had to adjust to a completely new technological regime. Um, because they had set- settled that planet hundreds of years ago and then lost access to wormholes that would allow them to return to, like, Earth or anywhere else where humans lived. So okay, that's Barriar. that's its history, that's why it has, like, why it is ruled by an emperor and a system of counts, uh, but also you can uh travel to space from there, and they have, like, blasters and other such fancy space opera technology. And this planet and its, like, feudal culture has an incredibly strong... Uh, bias against essentially disability um but uh i mean the 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 reason for this is because I think of like like mutagens in the environment barrierar is is a planet that had like a previously existing biosphere and then was colonized by humans, and I think in a certain way it's kind of hostile to human life and the civilization didn't have access to the medical technology that other places would use to deal with these problems. And so, uh, there just were people with, like, mutations, and those were, like, extremely socially stigmatized. Um, and Miles, the main character, is, uh, disabled, although not in a genetic way, um... But he uh, basically has a medical condition um, where his bones are extremely brittle, and his growth has been stunted, so he's very short and very prone to uh, breaking his bones or just in general getting injured. And he wants to be like a soldier in this incredibly uh, militaristic society. He wants to be an officer and like climb the military ranks, and he completely washes out of the entrance exams for that. Um, even though he got kind of a special deal and he's so smart and he's like, sure, he's going to be able to get in somehow. Uh, he fucks up the obstacle course and breaks both his legs and it's just like, alright, you cannot possibly pass these exams now. Uh What are you going to do for the rest of your life? And he's immensely frustrated and sad about all this because... uh you know, this military career thing. He really pinned all his hopes on it. He really wanted to prove that he could do it. Show all the fucking haters. Um, and it's not gonna happen now. This, like, only thing that he values. And, uh, he just, uh, goes on a wild adventure, pursuing a bunch of ridiculous schemes, uh, basically to make himself feel better about this. Um, and ends up becoming... Uh, in an alternate, like, fake identity that he made up, the leader of a band of mercenaries. And then he has to deal with that for the next several novels. Um. Also, mm-hmm. he's, like, 17. Because uh, this is that kind of book. This is a book all about, like, a hero who has these huge obstacles to overcome. Life is really hard for him. He struggles a lot. But he's, like so competent. He's always getting his way out of the next scrape, and he like, his, uh, his, he can always talk his way out of any problem, and he's super smart and capable. Um, it is, uh, people sometimes talk about, like, competence porn, like some fiction, you just are reading or watching it to see someone just like, uh, beast a bunch of problems in a really impressive way. And, uh, that's definitely a lot of what's going on in these books. Um also Ben messaged me and he's correct I, I should tell you that uh, Miles's people are basically Klingons um, the author denies it strenuously but it's very clear in these early books especially Shards of Honor but I think in this one too that these kind of started out conceptually as Star Trek fanfiction or at oh. least that the reason she was interested in writing this like extremely militaristic feudal space society is because she was like interested in Klingons that kind of put that idea in her head um yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's one of those things where when you go back to something you loved as a teen, it is often embarrassing. And I already had some <laughs> of this experience last year, with uh, f- realizing what was going on with the like, interplanetary politics of the series, like the different types of um, governments and like societies that are portrayed as existing in this galaxy, and the ways that they relate to each other, their histories, their wars completely incoherent from my (laughs) modern more modern you know my my adult more kind of historically educated point of view um but that's fine because there's space opera there's space adventures and uh star trek is full of societies that make no sense um it is definitely not as goofy as star trek sometimes is Um, it feels a little more thought out than that this is me reading
0: aragon knowing what libertarians are (laughs)
2: yeah i think there's definitely i mean like this this series it, it i don't know if i would say that it's like pro monarchist like pro feudalism i think the series is pretty dedicated to being like yeah here are some things that suck about this feudal system but first of all it's also incredibly enamored with it right um bujold thinks it's so fucking cool that Miles can, like, swear a person to be his vassal, um, and I have to agree, it is really fucking cool, (laughs) um, but, but, you know, um, it's, I guess it, the, the series, I would say, has, like, a certain kind of end of history sensibility, where it's just sort of like, yeah, this is the culture and civilization that these people have, and, isn't every other culture and civilization in this galaxy, doesn't it, don't they all have their flaws and foibles, and isn't it possible that the sort of hyper, uh, quote-unquote progressive Beta Colony is just as bad in their own way as the Barrierans? And it's like, I mean, maybe, but you did design Beta Colony to be a sort of exaggerated example of, like, uh, kind of, um, the, like, the, the sort of social welfare state gone too far and like meddling in people's lives and i'm like okay lois i I don't know what you're working out here um but whatever it's it's uh the character is compelling um and it's been very fun also this is one of the ones that i'm reading aloud so i'm reading it aloud to ben and uh it's been very fun to see him get hooked And to see him kind of responding to the wild seesaw of plot events that happen, which is, I think, kind of Bujold's specialty in this series. It's just, like, Miles keeps fucking making decisions and doubling down and, like, digging his hole deeper until he somehow gets out of it. Um, like, uh... He is just constantly uh, coming up with a solution to his problem that is definitely going to create so many more problems, but he's going to keep moving. Um, and that's a very fun engine for a plot. Uh, yeah. There's definitely some bad uh, gender and sexuality stuff in here. Um, like, things that just make me uncomfortable to look back on. Um, there's a uh, like, third biological sex question mark question mark question mark that they have on beta <laughs> colony um who are called hermaphrodites which is mm. not good no um the way that bujold understands this concept is is very late 80s yeah um and i don't think it really ever gets that much better uh in terms of I, I I would say that there are moments later in the books where that whole concept is revisited in ways that are a little more sophisticated, but I would not say that, um, like, I don't know. Those relationship those books' relationship to transness is very weird. There's a character who shows up way later on who is also some wild, like, trans shit. But, uh, you know, um... Sometimes, however embarrassing something is, uh, it still hits, and you enjoy it, and that's me. Yeah. With this book.
1: Yeah. Hell yeah.
0: <clears throat> you know what's not embarrassing?
1: Uh, it's not uh, embarrassing. I don't think it's embarrassing. It, it's very lightly embarrassing. I don't think so. Mistborn? Okay. Are we Mist talking Born about the Mistborn? the Final Empire.
2: <laughs> <laughs> I think Mistborn the Final Empire is quite cringe, but I don't think that's an obstacle to me enjoying it.
1: Real quick, I'm just gonna... Okay, cool. (laughs) I was making sure we were still recording. It looked for a second like it had hitched, but we're fine. Alright. So this time, listeners, we read um, four chapters because the last chapter of part two is very short. Uh, And so we finished, we would just... We figured we would just finish out part two. Um, So uh, if you are reading along with us and you didn't read chapter 15... Go do that. It's pretty short though. We'll wait. <laughs> um anyway. So we started with twelve this week, right? Mm-hmm. Okay, cool. <clears throat> um so this is the big like you know, Vim makes her debut as Vellette Renou at a at a party at a ball at you, Keep Venture.
0: You said that with the cadence of the hatsune miku Domino's app <laughs> and then this collaborative venture was carried out
1: <laughs> then makes her debut um she mostly just hangs out and politely declines as people ask her to dance um, until not not terribly like eventful we just get a lot of like her interiority as she's like experiencing this for the first time which is we can hit on soon. Until. I'm getting there. I'm prompting I'm you. I'm doing the summary. I'm prompting <laughs> you. I'm excited. Vin meets a boy who is so clearly so over the top, this is going to be a love interest. Yes. It is. <laughs> I
0: thought you were going to insult my man, Ellen.
1: Oh, I'm going to insult Ellen. I don't you worry. He's uh, you.
2: he's so smart. <laughs> she found him because he was hanging out in a little. Uh corner trying to read away from the party that's uh-huh. how cool he is he likes yeah. to read instead of going to parties but he's also really <laughs> clever and quippy when he's talking to her he's he's uh-huh. like saying these charming things and she's sharpening her wit her or the blade of her wit a little bit too and they have some banter and they're both kind of outcasts at this party aren't they they both sort of don't want to be here, but they're uh, making the best of it together, aren't they? In this nice little <laughs> corner that they found themselves in where they're sitting right next to each other.
1: Come to find out <gasps> that um, Seizid gets back to Vin and they're leaving the party. And Seizid's like, who's that, who is that you're talking to? And she's like, oh, I didn't get his uh, last name, but his name was Elend. And Seizid is like... You you mean the heir to House Venture, the biggest, most powerful house in... The house that we're in? The house that we're in. <laughs> <laughs> you got the attention of the most eligible bachelor in the Final Empire when we told you to just, like, you know... Chill out? <laughs> and she's like, well, you left and I got bored.
0: <sighs> I love this. I love this chapter. I love this She's, character. I love this whole He's thing. awful.
2: <laughs> Vin is just too charming and too good at meeting boys and it's gonna fuck up their plans.
0: Um. Now imagine if this was cross-dressing Vin. Oh
3: god.
2: Fuck you for making me think about that. That was so sick. Ugh. <laughs> not that it isn't kind of cute having her be like you know uncomfortable in these clothes but then sort of realizing like ah i can work this this is just another sort of form of trickery and, and i'm good at that
0: i am um, hiding
1: they're not really seeing me they're mm-hmm. seeing Valette. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> um and and i also really enjoy her thinking a little bit about um I I guess this is more in the next chapter, but I could talk about it here. Like, she starts to think about, well, at the party, they were just seeing, like, Valette. Um, And, you know, really, when I'm hanging around with the crew, they're also kind of not seeing me. I'm also kind of presenting, like, you know, the mask of, like, a shy girl who doesn't talk much um, and, like, listens a lot. You know, even though, in truth, I'm a little bit more, like sassy and standoffish than i maybe present to the rest of the crew you know um i love everything going on with vin in this chapter i just think it's like really good character writing for her
2: it's very very solid like ya stuff i know that actually Mm -hmm. these books are not considered to be brandon's ya books but like this thing of like a a a young, you know, a teenager being introduced to a new social situation for the first time and struggling with it a little but yeah. kind of making her own or holding her own and and realizing because of being in this new situation realizing kind of big things about how I mean how the self functions and how she how she functions socially in different contexts like Vin is coming of age right before our eyes. Yeah. And it's, it's good. It's, it's, uh, it is the whole Bildungsroman thing. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. I think like <clears throat> everything about like, yeah, I just think that like everything about the way that Brandon like plays this in this chapter just like sings for me. Like this is like reading this chapter was, I think the moment that I was like, oh, I'm going to read all three of these books. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, like this was where it like came together for me my first time through this. Yeah, me too.
2: Wow. I think that, uh, Brandon Sanderson's willingness to focus on a fancy party and a girl's internal development as a result of that fancy party and her romantic entanglement with a boy, I think that's great. Like, not to say that these things are new to fantasy, they're certainly not. Um, but I just think it's, it's good that Brandon, as, like, this, I guess my feeling is that there is a a level of care here given to narrative elements that I think, uh, Brandon's audience would have been happy to have him dispose of, you know? Like, Mm -hmm. people are going to be here for the magic system, people are going to be here for the lore, people are going to be here for the, like, cool heist shit, and you didn't have to care about, like, a teenager growing up that much. Mm-hmm. You know, um, yeah. Uh, but but he's into that stuff. Um, Brandon Sanderson is clearly, I think, deeply influenced by romance as a genre. Yeah.
1: Um, <clears throat> yeah, I think so, and I think that, like, um, <clears throat> you know, not. I don't say this as like a representation thing. But I do think that it is, like, fun and interesting that here in this chapter, we're getting, like, Mistborn girl who's going to go out and do, like, adventures and, like, you know, in the next couple chapters, she's going to kill, like, (coughs) five dudes, you know? Yeah, she's going to have her Gundam protagonist moment. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Getting, like, romantically entangled with, um, like, you know, what is normal normally I feel like in this sort of like fantasy novel, like the man of action falls for the girl who's like, s- you know, secretly like sneaking off to the corner of the party and reading the books, and like the man of action falls for the smart girl. And I j- I like that it's like kind of reversed here, you know. Um, yeah, I just think <laughs> it's like a fun little thing, even He's though a nerd. It, <laughs> even though it makes even though it makes Ellen the most smug, hateful piece of shit. <laughs> well, he's rich. Did you expect anything else?
2: He's no. rich, and he's also like fifteen. Mm-hmm. Like he, I, I, I don't know. I, I found him charming. I found the way that he's supposed to be charming to be effective
3: mm-hmm.
2: within the context of understanding that he's a teen and Vin's a teen, and mm-hmm. he's certainly not nearly as clever uh, as he thinks he is. Um. But that's not uh, a bad thing I think In as a character thing you know yeah. um, but it is maybe a little obnoxious to read at times
1: yeah I love this guy I love him and I, mean, I hate him so much like it's both um, for me Espe- especially in this chapter I'm like so charmed by him and I want to punch him in the face because of it
0: yeah but you don't <laughs> punch children
1: Yeah. <laughs>
2: <That's> the thing <laughs> yeah um. <laughs> I mean I feel like we'd had a conversation once about whether uh Kelsier would kill like a, a young innocent noble girl. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so the question of whether you punch children uh if they're of noble blood <laughs> has been one we've talked about on this podcast before or maybe that was like off uh off mic, I don't know. Isn't that the,
0: that one TV show about a guy who slaps a kid? Uh, oh, there's the a TV sh- the slap the
2: slap yeah. Oh. I, is that what it's about? I, I really don't know. I'm sorry. I think
0: he slaps a kid at a party and then it becomes a whole drama.
1: I I'm not familiar huh. with the show. It vaguely rings <laughs> a bell, but we also get introduced to an important
0: character in this chapter.
1: Oh right. That's here. Um Vin sees her dad. Yeah. At this party? Yeah. Uh, we we should talk, I guess, about the obligators. Um so Vin is like you know eating alone um just kind of observing <coughs> everything going on and notices that like there are all these obligators here and she's like kind of drawing connections uh in her mind between like oh the obligators watch the the nobles just like you know slave masters watch the sky <laughs> i don't i don't know about that well, we could talk about that more in a second but um She's, like, noticing that the obligators are at this party, and they're constantly being, like, called over to tables. And, like, she, like, watches um, an obligator sort of officiate some, like, ig- agreement between two nobles. And they have to, like, you know, give him five bucks after they make this agreement or something. Um, And one of the obligators that she sees, she recognizes as her father from when one time Reen was, like... Hey look, that's our dad. Just wanted you to know. Just wanted you to know.
2: <clears throat> Wait, does uh I don't actually remember. Has it been established that Reen and um and Vin have the same father?
1: You know, I don't remember off the top of my head.
2: Because um, uh, uh just I mean I guess um how is their uh sort of the relationship no. between their mother between Vin's mother and her father described, it was that her mother was a ska who was like the mistress of a nobleman, right? Like she was kind of uh, it sounds like she was sort of a kept woman. Hmm. Um. So.
0: I think that the book says that he's her father, and I've clicked on the the page on the wiki for Reen, and it it describes him as her half sister. his- She's his half sister, so I think you're right that they don't yeah. share a father. Okay.
2: I found a bit. I found a section um, in the book where, yeah, where basically <laughs> she explains her family background to the crew, and she does refer to him as her half brother. Okay. Uh, okay. And I uh, that yeah, and he also specifies it is specified that yeah they they share a mother. Um, okay. So yeah, presumably Reen. I would imagine that Rean is not a Misting or a Mistborn, that probably Rean's father is not noble, but I guess we don't actually know that for any certain Mm -hmm. reason. Um, Anyhow, that does make me wonder, I mean, because in the scene that I'm looking at, this is at the end of uh, chapter three, Vin also says that Rean said that And it's just the word the books use is that her mother was a whore. Um, Mm -hmm. Which is interesting to me because, I mean, the way that it's framed makes it sound like she is like, you know, essentially a survival sex worker, right? Somebody who, like Rean and Vin were, is like living on the streets. Mm -hmm. Um, But at the same time, she knows for sure who the father of one of her children is. So that makes it sound like she was exclusive with Vin's father for at least some period of time. Right. So basically I don't feel like I have a clear picture of what Vin's mother's life situation was when she had Vin or when she had Reen and mm. I'm curious because Reen could have used that, could have called her that but been referring to her being like a mistress of one particular man. Mm. Um, yeah. But we don't know really. <laughs> yeah um
1: chapter 13 real quick did we have any more thoughts about um vin's observation that the obligators are like watching the nobles like the slave masters watch the sky? Yeah, there's only
0: one person who's not being watched in this empire
1: yeah it's yeah the lord ruler yeah
2: yeah i, I think it's a-
0: the the inquisitors keep the obligators in check too Yeah, probably. I think it's a whole tree. (laughs)
2: Yeah, I I think it's interesting how um, it it, it seems as though from the way that the obligators are kind of just there to like notarize transactions. Mm. um, It seems like not only it seems like the nobles have a culture where they are constantly making small agreements with each other that Mm -hmm. need to be uh, certified by obligators. Like, the actual thing that Vin overhears is what the person says is, Swear that I'll share news of my engagement with him before anyone else. And then the obligator says, uh, I witness and record this. And so that is just kind of like a promise between friends, it feels like, right? Um, It's not... It's not something that for most people, if they were making a promise like that, they wouldn't normally feel the need to have it witnessed. And it's also sort of a thing that, like the type of agreement that it is, the way I feel about it is like, oh, they're just constantly making little vows in the way where like, in my daily life, if I'm planning to do something for another person, I'm probably not going to like, swear to them that i will do it i'm Mm. just gonna like do it and so it makes me wonder if a culture there there exists a culture among the nobles of this society of constantly interweaving obligators into their daily interactions with each other um which i think is very interesting and i wonder if it's something that the lord ruler encouraged in Mm. order to make obligators like a totally uh naturalized and and common part of the nobles daily lives Mm -hmm. like that does seem like a pretty good way to accomplish this purpose of surveilling them it's it's almost like uh the way in which um you know uh you can't really go anywhere or do anything in much of modern society if you i don't know don't have like a credit card and that phone Mm-hmm. Yeah, and and so those are just things that are completely part of our everyday lives, and that I mean that do track us, <laughs> um, yeah. in various ways. And so it feels like he has instituted a system in some ways like that among the nobles, and yeah. I think that's very interesting to note.
1: Chapter thirteen, <laughs> uh, the gang gets into some deep shit. Uh, <laughs> not that shit, <laughs> not that deep, Kelsier um okay the 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 chapter summary skips past something that i think is like interesting um they get back to um like lord renews manor um and you know kind of debrief about this uh ball and Kelsier this is, is like uh- oh you go
2: just, this is when the whole thing about, like, you talk to Eland Venture? He's a big deal, and that's gonna draw attention. That's bad for our plans. This mm-hmm. is when that gets told to Vin.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Um, and Kelsier is like, ooh, I'm gonna go do something, like, secret. And, like, you can't know about it, Vin. Um, which, I don't know what he expects, Next, I don't know why you would tell Vin that you're going to go do something that she can't know about because you know that she's going to follow you. But, yeah, um, she is she, like, oh, I'm so tired. I'm going to go to bed. And then she immediately puts on her mist cloak and follows Kelsier. Discovers this, like, neat little, like, alimantic highway, basically, where you can, like, push and pull on very on, like, these bronze rods that are on the ground between... Um I I don't remember the name of the town that Renu lives in, but um like between Felice. that town and the Felice. Felice, thank you. Um uh, <clears throat> she catches up with Kelsier, and Kelsier's like, Well, I don't know what I expected. <laughs> um, <laughs> and she's like, What were you up to? And he's like, I don't want to tell you, and she's like, What are you up to? And he's like, I don't want to tell you. And she's like, What are you up to? And he's like I'm going to go into the Lord Ruler's palace if you must know. And she's like, that's stupid. I'm going with you. And he's like, no, you're not. And She says, yes, I am. And He's like, okay, fine. I'm bringing a 15-year-old into the Lord Ruler's palace with me. What's well, the, the worst thing that can happen? The alternative is
0: that she's going to follow him anyway. The
1: alternative is for him not to go. <laughs> <laughs> he has to go. He has to go. Um, Kelsier, you know, reveals that Years ago, the, the plot that went bad that got him sent to the fence of ha- pits of sin, was that he, you know, through surveillance and recon learned that, uh, every three days, for three hours, the Lord Ruler goes into this, like, you know, private chamber in Credic Shaw, the palace, um, and, like, spends like three hours there and they don't know what's in there. They have no idea. Um, and so Kelsier wants to find out. And so he did this years ago after like months and months of planning and got betrayed or, or thinks he got betrayed. We, we can talk about that in a minute. Um, that got him sent to the, sent to the pits. Um, and this time he's like, well, it'll go better if I don't overplan. I know this isn't one of the days that he goes to that room. And so I can just Give it a shot, see what happens, um, and things go pretty bad. But we'll talk about that in chapter fourteen. Um, More importantly, Kelsier teaches Vin. Oh about God, I forgot about this part. One yes. of
0: the two extra metals that she hasn't learned yet. Yes, <clears throat> adium is found in the pits of Hatson. It's extremely valuable because when you burn it. You can see the future. You get the Sharingan. Kind of, you can see what's about to happen before it happens. Mm-hmm. The only way to like counter Adium if you're fighting somebody is to also have Adium. Cuz then you're constantly changing what you're going to do because you see what they're going to do and vice versa, so you know, they can kind of nullify the advantage. Uh-huh. So uh that's cool. He gives her some, and then they head off to Credit Shaw. Mm-hmm. You have anything else to do? You want to dig into any, anything here?
1: I have nothing else. Summary wise, um, discussion wise, I feel like I have. I feel like anything I have to say, I could just say for chapter fourteen. But uh, you know, if y'all have anything specific about thirteen, go for it.
2: Um, I guess I do want to say that. Um. I definitely feel like the way that uh Kelsier you know you guys were saying like what did he expect would happen and I think that's completely true like Vin is so nosy he knows this she's always eavesdropping on him um and uh it's frustrating to me because it you know it feels like not very good plotting basically because I feel like if back at the place Kelsier was like listen I'm going to the Lord Ruler's palace to try to figure out what the fuck his deal is. And Vin can't come because it's very dangerous. I know that his sort of need to learn more about and sort of like master the Lord Ruler is his kind of personal business that he's tried to be like, oh, I'm not going to involve anyone else in. But like, I don't know. I guess I feel as though it would have been not that difficult for Kelsier to avoid this situation, and it makes the bloodbath that follows feel like it's his fault to me. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, That's a weird, like, you know, the book has been trying to build the idea that Kelsier is is kind of a, a callous, dangerous guy, but this doesn't feel like the right way for that to be the case, you know? Um... Uh, the Elementic Highway is pretty cool, though. Yeah, um, it's it's just like a <clears throat> it's it's all set up so that you can just push off of these uh, things in the ground and go super fast. Um, mm-hmm. I I wonder whether it seems like Vin is using pushing to travel on this Elementic road.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: So. I guess it only works for um well they're
0: driven into the ground so I imagine unless you're like an inquisitor you can probably pull on
2: them mm-hmm. do like, you think pulling would work because it it seemed like it it seemed like the method of locomotion that they were using was jumping right mm-hmm. yeah but you', leaping if you pull from yourself
0: one to the- toward the next one you wouldn't go but as high up but you could you could do it.
2: Oh wait, how are you picturing these things? Because I was imagining them as sort of flat stones laid into the earth. Or
1: not stones, but like... They're like stakes, right? I think, they're descri- I think they're like long rods that are like driven into the ground. So if it's driven deep enough, I guess you could like... I, I was what thinking it... of big metal staples.
2: What it says stabbed is... Stabbed
0: into the ground.
2: Here's the description. She soon found two more bronze bars embedded in the earth. It was hard to tell in the night, but it seemed that the four bars made a line that pointed directly toward Luthadel. Um. And she, let's see, um. She gripped the first bar in her palm, then stepped up in front of the second pair of bars. Um. So, they are- They're not super high up in the air, right? She can grip them. But you're right that they're not flat into the earth like I was imagining. But, uh, I I mean, I guess you're right that they're, like, staples. I guess it's just, if they're no higher than, like, Vin's eye level, right? I don't really see how... I guess it would be sort of like monkey bars? I guess so? That just doesn't feel to me like something that would function in the same way that this very cool jumping thing does. Um... Anyway, I, even the... Maybe
0: you need both. Maybe it is like a misborn Highway. So you would pull on one in front of you, push on one behind you constantly. Maybe.
2: Yeah. Um... it 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 seems like she... The way that it's described of what she's doing, it sounds to me like she's just pushing. Um... It certainly seems like she could also pull to like give herself more balance, but it seems like something you could pull off if you were skilled enough with just pushing.
0: Because there's also the guardrails. There's like the extras on the sides, right? Mm-hmm. Right,
2: but I think you push against those as well. Mm-hmm. Um, anyway, uh, that doesn't matter too much, I guess, but I, I, it is kind of a funny thing to think through how... Um, Mistings are already quite rare And this would only be like One-eighth or potentially one-quarter Of Mistings who can use this highway at all um, And then obviously Mistborn can use it But Mistborn is supposed to be like vanishingly rare mm-hmm. um, mm.
1: Who knows maybe this is Kelsier's road It makes me think that it is just Kelsier built it Or some, or Yeah it just makes me feel like Kelsier put this here <laughs>
2: Yeah, I mean, you know, I will say, how long has the final empire been around? Like a thousand years. Um, And there do seem to be a higher number of people with mist powers, allomantic powers among the nobles. So I find it believable that maybe hundreds of years ago, some, I don't know, cabal of noble mistborn laid this track for themselves. Um, Because it seems like something that would just kind of persist out in the wilderness if nobody... Yeah. Went near it very often, and, and nobody does go out in the mist, so.
1: Yeah, that makes sense. Anyway.
0: Chapter 14. He- Chapter 14. <laughs> we're going have a great time.
2: Oh, I'm sorry, there's one yeah. last thing that I want to mention. I've almost forgot, because this is just, like, one line. Uh, when she's trying to convince Kelsier to let her go on this trip with him, and he's like, no, it's too dangerous. She says, Kelsier, we're planning to overthrow the final empire. I don't really expect to live until the end of the year anyway. And that's fucking wild, man. Yeah. (laughs) Vin thinks, Vin believes that she is about to die. Vin is risking it all for Kelsier and his plan. And I think she's, I think it's like a very clear eyed perspective from her because.
1: She's very relaxed about, yeah, I think I'm probably going to be dead soon. I don't know.
2: Like, based on the situation that's been described, like, the degree of uh, sort of long odds that Kelsier's group are facing, I feel like it's a reasonable estimation on her part. Like, yeah, she probably yeah. is going to die. And obviously, I know she's not going to fucking die. This, She's going to win instead, because this is a novel, like a fantasy novel. She's not going to die. Hmm. Um, but, um, But I thought that was, like, a-, a compelling moment. And I also think it's just, like, a very interesting... I think what it really communicates is how much an early death has always felt like a reality for Vin, you know? yeah, Because she, it seems, is just not even considering the idea of quitting this crew and going and doing something safer with her life, even though it really doesn't seem like she's all that attached to Kelsier's mission. Um, Mm. Or like she really believes it's going to succeed. But she's just sort of like, You know what? What the fuck else am I doing with my short life?
0: Also, I want to learn more about Allomancy. Yeah.
2: Yeah, but, like, she's (laughs) only... Like, I guess what I'm saying is she's interested in learning more about Allomancy, but it's a totally, like... It's almost like idle curiosity. It's not like she expects to be able to use Allomancy to achieve some kind of success in the future. Because she has no future.
3: hmm mm-hmm. You know?
2: She doesn't want to learn Allomancy to survive or to improve her, like, thieving capabilities. She just has this raw hunger to learn Allomancy. And this total acceptance of death. Yeah. Wild.
1: I love them. Chapter fourteen.
0: Uh, we get. Have you ever played Arkham Asylum?
3: <laughs> <laughs>
0: um.
1: Okay. I I might. He's dishonored. Is the whole there? I might just read this um, summary from Coppermine because a lot of this is an action scene, and I want to make sure I don't like skip anything.
0: There's a couple details that I think are mixed in here. Um. Like, there's that aside in the parentheses we don't need to read because, uh...
1: Yeah. Yeah. Anyway. Anyway. Um, so. Kelsier leads Vin into the palace, uh, and they start making their way toward the <laughs> chamber that the Lord Ruler visits for three hours every three days.
0: Um, On their way there. Uh, be just being near the palace works like soothing... Because it just dampens your emotions, dampens your hope. Yeah. And so Kelsier is like, ah, just turn on your copper and it'll you'll feel better. And she does at first.
1: Yes. And at the well, I think it addresses this in the next sentence. She also notices that the Lord Ruler's soothing influences her despite her copper cloud as she gets closer and closer to mm-hmm. like, you know, or deeper into Critic Shaw. Yeah. Um They make it to the building within a building, which is like this chamber, Um, but uh, Steel Inquisitor Inquisitor is there. So inside of this mysterious chamber is a
0: big room, inside of which is a hut of some unknown design, Mm -hmm. set like a whole building inside of this room, and there's like carvings on it, there's like words on it they don't understand. Mm-hmm. It's completely out of place mm-hmm. with the rest of Credit Shaw's like architecture. Yeah, and when Kelsier opens, knock knock, open up the door. It's real, <laughs> and inquisitor <laughs> is inside, um, and then two more show up, and they have to run yeah. and flee.
1: Um, um they, um, Kelsier is like, I'm going to try and distract. The Inquisitors, you get the fuck out of here. The Inquisitor um, says, "Oh, you're the one I've been after. Um, I'll make Kelsier's death quick if you can tell me like who is the nobleman that like fathered you, then, because he wants to go after you know whoever this nobleman is." This is what the Inquisitors do when they're not
0: you know killing rebels. Yeah, <laughs> I guess they're tracking down. The nobles who break the rules. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I'm sure they're going, just going to have a nice talk. Yeah.
1: Um, she burns some adium. And she's um, able to like get away a little bit. But this Inquisitor um, catches back up with her and gives her a real nasty axe wound. Um, uh, she like keeps running um and she has this like leather bound book with her um i forget i have totally forgotten this detail until i read this uh summary on compromise mm-hmm. she has a book with her and she uses that book to like uh trick the inquisitor somehow well, she
0: <laughs> you don't remember this at all do
1: you? no i don't remember this
0: so she runs and an inquisitor is chasing her she gets cornered in this sort of sort of chapel, sort of altar room mm-hmm. with all these old books and she's hiding behind this shelf. She burns ATM as he's coming around the corner in order to dodge his attack because he's like in these rooms, there's just like basins of shuriken, basically just like sharp pieces of metal. Uh, and he's going to throw them at her. She grabs a book, blocks a bunch of them and keeps running. And then he understands that she's got ATM Um, he keeps chasing her and as she's about to come around this corner the first inquisitor the one who like recognizes her comes around stabs her with um i guess later on they start calling them axes but i was reading in this scene as if it was like um the sort of i don't know what they're called they're like the wooden swords that have the pieces of obsidian tied to them i don't know the south american sort of weapon that whose name escapes me at the moment um but basically, you know, no metal. Hmm. She's hurt real bad. She escapes by bolting out into the mist, using the spires to pull herself across the rooftops and stuff I such. do remember that. Um, she still has the book, which has a bunch of those blades in it. So she pushes it away, just like Kelsier fooled her with, her, with his coin pouch, to try and fool the Inquisitor into following that. Um, but... Another inquisitor shows up and finds her, and then some weird stuff happens as she's like bleeding out, and somebody else picks her up, and it's not Kelsey,
1: but it was a, it was like a warm face that she like recognized and felt like secure around. Uh, So, um, I think this is pretty sick. It's it's a. Pretty good action scene um, I Every hate Kelsier Every
0: time we go all out on Mistborn powers Against guys, it's just a Dishonored level
1: <laughs> he's
0: just like Bam, he's in the room, you're dead, you're dead You're dead <laughs> Grab a candle this,
2: this felt extremely like Like an episode of Like an action-y TV show mm-hmm. yeah. um, I think the thing That keeps coming to my mind with this book Is Leverage, because that's the like Heist-y TV show that I watched um but uh, that leverage I think doesn't usually have this much killing. Um Which <laughs> we is great. Talk about that? <laughs> yeah. Vin Vin is shocked by what she's done. She like shot a bunch of coins into people's chests and pulled them out covered in blood. That's fucking hardcore, man. <laughs>
1: um Nora described this earlier as the gundam protagonist moment there's like a moment it happens in every gundam show my favorite is when um camille does it where like camille kills like three people and then says you wouldn't have died if you hadn't gotten in my way and like <laughs> like, I am going to kill things that get in my way. It's your fault that you were the person who was in my way. Uh, yeah,
2: that that kind of moment of this, like, teen protagonist reckoning with the idea that they've been put in a situation oh. where they've killed.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh, also, it said I just killed four men, Vin thought, stunned. Before, Reem thing. had always done the killing.
1: Yeah, this is the other thing. Yeah, but, like, She's not a stranger to death, but... Sh- she had always been able to sort of, like, dislocate it from herself. Oh, oh Reen's doing it. You know, I'm an accomplice, but it's not me doing it.
2: I get the sense that basically because Vin is not really in a position to win a fight with people physically most of the time, that, or at least that that seems to be the way that, like, Reen thought about it and, like, clearly kind of inculcated in her, like, Vin, you're small and weak. You need to stay out of fights if you want to survive them. Um, and now, you know, Vin has incredible power. And with great power comes great responsibility. But <laughs> <laughs>
0: well, she is also like, I made him bring me. I wanted to fight like him. I'm going to have to get used to this. And all throughout this scene, Kelsir pauses to be like, these were evil men, Vin. Every Ska knows in his heart that it's the greatest of crimes to take up arms in defense of the final empire. Which would play toward what if Kelsier is shadier than than he's letting on if we didn't, you know, know so much about him? Because he's constantly being like, no, this is okay, Vin. What we're doing here is good, as she's, like, mowing down guys who don't stand a chance.
2: Yeah, like, it, it... I thought that line, every Ska knows in his heart that the greatest of crimes is to take up arms in the defense of the final empire, was an absolutely fascinating statement of Kelsier's ideology. Um, because... I think it's very evident that lots of Ska do not, like, intuitively mm-hmm. know that, or the resistance would be way bigger, um, or or way better supported. Um, You know, I understand that just knowing that, like, the people who oppress you are, like, morally wrong, and that, like, taking up arms against them would be a morally right thing for you to do, that doesn't necessarily mean that people go ahead and do it, or are able to do it. However, I do think it's clear that plenty of people believe in the propaganda that the lord ruler is god and the arbiter of moral worth Like, I think that's a pretty deeply entrenched cultural belief in the final empire even among Ska um, but I mean Kelsier's claim I guess is basically that that's false consciousness or something like that <laughs> um, and I don't disagree uh, but I, I think what I'm saying is I would like it better if we had a little bit more of a sense that this is this is kelsier using rhetoric, you know? this mm-hmm. is kelsier like waving the flag of his ideology to rally vin. Mm-hmm. um and and like that this is something that that kelsier believes to some extent but also something that he believes is convenient to say in a moment like this, you know? he's he's firing her up with slogans. um but i don't really think the book thinks about it that way. Mm-hmm. i think the book really believes that this at the very least, that this is genuinely what Kelsier believes wholeheartedly. That every Ska knows it is wrong to, t- to defend the interests of the Emperor. And yeah, I-, I-, I guess I would just like to see more of a sense of characters actually reckoning with the way in which what they're doing, Kelsier's whole plan, is like deeply against their social order. Mm hmm. Um, which is not me saying I want to see people abandon the plan, or, like, it just, I don't know, remember that conversation from the last episode all about, like, the moral question that Ham brings up that is just dismissed out of hand?
1: Yeah, yeah. <clears throat> I feel like this is twice now that, like, the book is, like, walking up toward, like, in Ham, like, bringing up that moral question, and in, like, Kelsier kind of, like, trying to to soothe Vin here, um, not like the magic power soothing, but, you know, um, I feel like in both of, um, uh, what am I trying to say? Like, I feel like in both of these cases, the book is, like, walking up toward this moral question, but not as fully exploring it as maybe it could, you know?
2: Yeah, um, but, you know, I understand it's the middle of a fight scene. Yeah. Um Uh I I also I was really struck by the way that the Inquisitors were depicted as like ravening monsters. Uh the Mm. word creature was used very frequently to describe them and the way that they speak is often described as like like I think words like growl are used. Mm Mm-hmm. Uh they have scratchy voices. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I know that they're inhuman, um, but I wasn't necessarily expecting there to be quite this level of emphasis that they are, like, bestial. You know? Um, they sort of struck me before this moment as, like, extremely, like, the way that they're inhuman is, in some sense, by being raised above the human, mm. you know? Like, they're almost like uh, these, like, robots yeah. who are, like, hyper cold and clinical. And I-, I, if I had imagined what a Steel Inquisitor spoke like before this, I would have imagined, like, a very cold and, like, controlled voice. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's not really what they're like. Uh, they're just straight up Monster horror people. monsters.
0: Yeah, uh, I think that there's like the t- I think like nor like neutral state inquisitor is this sort of intimidating presence and this like detached like this is a symbol of power and then as soon as they're like interested in you, they change into this like hungry. Thing mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. that is going to like do their job to you uh with like relish, and then they'll like if, but if they're not like focused on you, then they are this like cold and um emotionless thing because they have those those like metal eyes, yeah, yeah,
2: um, the creature smiled, lips curling in an eerie expression beneath the two massive sp- spikes that had been pounded point first through its eyes. Like this is very dehumanizing language. Um, which I'm not trying to say like, oh how mm. dare I don't mean that as like a criticism. Yeah. Um I, I think like some very uh inhuman, monstery guys is a an interesting, compelling thing to have at this point of the narrative.
0: Certainly much more um much more compellingly written than the decor monks
2: oh boy yeah (laughs) (laughs) yes for sure Um, i do think it's very funny that now this has been two types of guy where my assessment of what kind of opponent they were going to be was much more like canny like religiously devoted but like intelligent uh schemers and then they turn out to actually be like monster guys yeah um Because that's kind of how I looked at the decor monks Mm -hmm. and me wanting to insist that they didn't have magic was kind of part of that. I just wanted them to be like a a warrior uh, brotherhood. Um, But no, they've literally got like mutant bodies. (laughs) And so do these guys. They have like claws. Or they don't literally have claws. but I, I don't know. I had a hard time understanding whether Steel Inquisitor's bodies appear human other than the spikes.
0: I believe they
1: do, yeah.
2: Okay. Yeah. All right. There's um, like,
1: but you see, there's fan art I could send, but I'm like hesitant to do it until we learn more about them.
0: There's also like yeah. official
1: art. Yeah, like
0: they're on the cover of the of the adventure, the RPG.
1: I know. I just want to like, y- you know, once we know just like a little bit more about their deal, not even like a ton more. I just, you know, that's all.
2: Yeah, I'm I'm fine waiting on that. Um. Uh, I will say I, I'm i a little underwhelmed by idiom, I have to say.
1: It's just the shine because gun. it's Because
2: <laughs> I don't know what the shine gun is.
1: That's from Naruto. It's a uh, special eye that lets you see what your opponent is about to do.
2: Yeah, it just, <clears throat> in much the same way, I guess, that I've previously talked about how the allobantic powers feel to me, like powers that are invented for the purpose of being cool tools for like a thief to use and so they feel kind of like just designed for the narrative's purposes. Mm-hmm. This is also that 100% because you know it's described as the ability to see a few seconds into the future but it is specifically framed in the way that like you know a power in a shonen battle anime would be framed. The The yeah. thing that is relevant about this power is that is what it can do to fights. Yeah. Um, and the fact that it basically gives an objective un the uh, advantage to whoever is using it, you mm-hmm. know? It, it is just like, you know, in a, like, in battle show, you'll sometimes have something where it's like, ah, this new technique is totally unstoppable compared to every technique that came before until the technique that can defeat it is introduced. Yeah. Um, which I find a lot more, I guess, compelling in a narrative that is structured more... As a genre around, like, battle competence. Um, like, because this narrative has this kind of broader epic fantasy thing to it, it's weird for me, for the, like, highest form of magic, to have so specialized a use. Um, It's a form of seeing the future, but we're not going to ask any questions about what that means for the nature of time here. That mm-hmm. is totally irrelevant. It only lets you see a person's movements a little bit in the a little bit ahead. We're not gonna go into any of the weird possibilities that even a tiny amount of precognition sort of can introduce to a, a fictional setting. Um that's not relevant. What
0: if you had enough ADM to flare it? Then what what might you
2: <laughs> see? That's a very good question. And perhaps that will happen and perhaps it'll be cool. Um I I I I hope that you know Adium develops like it's been built up as this big thing, and so I don't sort of expect everything about it to be revealed right now. Um, um it's interesting. Uh, I just
0: remembered that like there must be Adium mistings.
2: Who that's? The, I guess that's the only thing they can do is Adium. I I mean. Must there be? Like, I, I? that's sort of presuming certain things about how the magic system works. Um, I'm not saying that I don't believe you. I just, I feel like what I've seen so far, I wouldn't assume that. Just because Adium is so special, it seems totally believable to me that it functions differently. And that it doesn't create mistings. Hmm. Um, but I guess also, it would be very possible for someone to be an Adium misting and just never find out their entire life. Because they would never get their hands on any of the metal, and so they'd never have mm-hmm. a chance to even, like, unconsciously burn it. Yeah. And
1: and I guess also, like, why would you give somebody ATM to find out if they were an ATM misting? Because mm-hmm. even once you had that information, what are you going to do with it? Yeah, you I just, suppose so. You just spent a million dollars on basically useless <laughs> Information, <laughs> because the only seemingly the only use of ATM is cool fights, and if your only power is ATM, it's not going to make you that much better at being. It would a cool make you fighter. a
0: really good haze killer, I guess. I guess so. And also the most expensive bodyguard in the world. <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah, it's it's kind of um incredible that Kelsier just gives Vin some adium at this point because it. Clearly, he wasn't planning on doing that, right? Like, that mm-hmm. wasn't his plan for this evening. Well, it seems like a huge resource to spend on whim.
0: Maybe that's why he didn't know there was an Inquisitor behind the door. Otherwise, he would have seen himself, like, open the door and get stabbed or whatever.
2: Oh, you're yeah. saying he gave to her the idiom he was going to burn for himself? Maybe. Maybe. Oh, shit. I suppose that's possible. Um, but if that's the case, it just makes me question his judgment even more <laughs> for bringing her along, right? We're going I was into thinking- this
0: heist, and I'm going to give my child this gun so that I don't have it.
2: <laughs> yeah, I'm going to give my my uh, my get-out-of-jail-free card to this child, because I feel like if I don't do that, she might not survive. So I'm going to lose my own safety net. Are you kidding me, Kelsier?
1: Kelsier makes so many bad choices in one chapter. <laughs> Um,
0: other thing to note is that this room that Vin found that book in is full of, quote, other religious paraphernalia, which, uh, is curious to me. Yeah.
2: Yeah, would love to know what that is. Um, there's definitely a lot of her, while she's in this palace, looking around at the, uh, like stained glass windows that depict religious scenes of the Lord Ruler overcoming the deepness. And she's like, why do they depict the deepness so, like, amorphously? She kind of assumes that they are, like, not depicting it as it truly appeared, but that this is some sort of, like, I don't know, censorship, I suppose? Um, Which I think is interesting because I don't see why a world-ending threat that the Lord Ruler fought a thousand years ago couldn't be a sort of amorphous black presence. Um. (sighs) Also, this reminds me that Um, I mean, as of this chapter, I was like, ah, this is established. And then I looked back and saw it had actually basically been mentioned in previous chapters. But we have now seen the concept of, quote, the deepness in both the uh, pre-chapter, like, headers, Mm -hmm. and within the sort of uh, narrative of, like, the main novel. Mm -hmm. um, Which I think is basically conclusive proof of the thing I've been saying all along, that the guy narrating these interstitial bits... Is the Lord Ruler during his quest to save the world a thousand years ago, in which he succeeded, and by virtue of succeeding, he became the Lord Ruler? Mm-hmm. Um, because yeah. we now know that the guy writing these little things is defeating the deepness, and the Lord Ruler defeated the deepness. We'll get into so. that
0: a little more when I read the the headers, because uh, it'll 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 spark yeah. an interesting discussion. I think.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Um, but yeah, that had been like we didn't comment on it because I think I was so confident in my prediction that I. It didn't stand out to me, actually, but they, there was a previous moment when the idea that the Lord Ruler defeated the Deepness mm-hmm. was mentioned. Um, mm-hmm. So, so Mark is right about everything. <laughs> <laughs> Basically.
1: Um,
2: chapter 15.
1: Um, uh, Kelsier makes it back to the rest of the crew. Um Everyone is like Kelsey. What the fuck were you thinking? <laughs> you did- brought a child. Is she dying? Maybe.
2: Why did you even go in the first place, my dude? <laughs>
1: um, they're planning to like go out and search for her when Sazed shows up. Um, and is like has her. Mm-hmm. Um, they give her a bunch of pewter to help her heal. Um, Sazed like you know. Does some first aid and stuff like that. Um,
2: I would say it's much more than first aid. Oh, yeah, Um, yeah, yeah. a She has a gut wound, and he first sews up one of her internal organs, which has been punctured, and then sews up the outside of her gut. That's some pretty complicated surgery.
1: Yeah. Uh, Saison's great. Saison is great. Um, uh, She, like, goes up to her room to recover. Um... And they talk a little more and says says it is like she brought this book with her um, and says it uh, says it's in this like ancient language called Killenium that he thinks he could be able to translate, but uh, it's going to take him some time. Um, and there's also I, I'm reminded from the note at the bottom of this mm-hmm. that there is another like thing that we should talk about, but I don't wanna like give it away too much, so Nora, could you like Is it is it, what does it say in the is, chapter it, itself?
2: Is this about is this about the idea of a metal mine? Okay, mm-hmm. cool.
1: I didn't know if that vocabulary word had come up yet. Cool. Thank yeah. You.
2: Why don't I <laughs> Why don't yeah. we start that with me describing what I feel like I know? Yeah, um, let's rather because I. But but do we want to get to that part right away, or do we want to sort of talk about like other parts of the chapter first? Uh,
1: uh-huh. Let's yeah, let's circle back to doing like the metal mine stuff last. Um, uh, yeah, I just think Kelsier's a fuck up.
2: <laughs> yeah, um, and it's kind of weird how like I mean clearly he thinks so too, and and the book is kind of like yeah Kelsier fucked up this time, but. um like the book wants us to kind of sympathize with Kelsier and his fuck upness, where like he's he's beating himself up about it. You let her die too. First mare, then Vin. How many more will you lead to slaughter before this is through? So it's all about his like angst, and I'm just I don't have the sympathy for him because it feels like such an unforced error. Yeah. Um Yeah. <sighs> um. um Like, yeah, what did you fucking think was gonna happen when you infiltrated the Lord Ruler's inner sanctum? He's insanely powerful, which we find out more about that at the end of this chapter. Wild shit about what the Lord Ruler is like. He also seems like he's basically an absurd monster, Um, which we already got a hint of in the previous chapter with the thing where he has an aura of depression. Like, I don't know that we quite discussed in detail. It's described as being as though it's like a strong aura of soothing, but it's specifically like it's soothing all your emotions at once. So you feel like nothing. And it's literally described as a depression. Mm -hmm. Um, So he's like a freaking dementor. (laughs) (laughs)
1: Well, and also, um, like, the Lord Ruler is described in these chapters as like, we have to take him down. He can shrug off a decapitation, no problem. He could, you know, um
2: uh... He walked out of a burning house as nothing more than a skeleton and healed in seconds. <laughs> Wolverine what the fuck could is never, this <laughs> guy. Yeah. Um Absolutely wild thing to say about someone's powers. It honestly feels to me like he's booked a little too strong here. Like cuz these are not just rumors about uh not just rumors, or at least the way Kelsier is talking about this. It doesn't seem like these are just rumors about what he's like because he's so godlike. Uh, it sounds like Kelsier is like, no, this is reliable information that I've heard. Like, uh, like I'm not just saying, oh, these are the wild things people who worship him as a god say. I Kelsier seems to believe, based on the evidence, that mm-hmm. he is only annoyed by decapitation and can recover his entire body from a burnt out skeleton in seconds. Um now, of course, I do have the question here that I always have when Kelsier talks about stuff <laughs> of like where he got this info, because he says that a group of soldiers burned down his inn during one of the early wars. That makes it sound like that's something that happened almost a thousand years ago. Yeah. Um so I don't know how Kelsier knows about that or why he considers that to be one hundred percent reliable information, but I'm sure it is true, the way the book's presenting it, right?
0: Um, There's also the part here um, where uh, it says that Vin is no ordinary person. Pewter would keep an alavancer alive long after their body would have given out. In addition, Sazed was no ordinary healer. Religious rites were not the only things that keep her stored in their uncanny memories. Their metal minds contained vast wealths of information on culture, philosophy, and science.
2: Are we going to talk about metal minds now? Mm-hmm. I'm 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 ready to do it if you want. Yeah. yeah, I feel like
1: that's the 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 big thing in this chapter. Yeah.
2: All right. So what I know about a metal mind, uh, it is something that Sazed has access to, and that uh keepers in general with a capital k of which says is one mm-hmm. keepers have metal mines which in some sense are uncanny memories that contain vast wealths of information on culture philosophy and science and so it's because of this metal mine thing that says is able to do this life sa- life-saving surgery on vin uh i guess something we don't know about is whether like any other like any surgeon who's not a keeper could do this kind of thing like is this contemporary uh, medical science or does saizid know like ancient forgotten medical techniques? That seems entirely possible to me, but I don't think it's been established. Um also, though, a metal mind is a resource that he can use up. Uh because Saisid is the one who saved her, and when he talks about what it took for him to save her, um, he says, I used up an entire metal mind to make the trip with haste. So, okay. A metal mind is something that an individual keeper has more than one of, and he can use it up to do something, like move quickly.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: So that's very interesting. Um, yeah. And,
1: uh, in, in yeah. That, in that way, it seems similar to, like, burning a metal allomantically, but it doesn't not that similar, you know?
2: Yeah, it... it my my. I guess if I were to describe what I currently think a metal mind is, my guess is that it is, in some sense, like a an amount of metal that is stored within a keeper somehow. Possibly physically, since that's how allomancy works, but maybe not. Maybe it is kind of more psychically within them somehow. Um, Yeah, so it's stored within a keeper, and it contains information unlike the metals that an allomancer will have inside of them. And I would also assume it lasts in a way that alimantic metals don't. Like, there was that thing where Kelsier warned her not to sleep with alimantic metals, like, in her belly, because they might just get digested by her body and make her sick. Clearly, Sazed has been able to maintain metal mines for some time. Yeah. Like, it doesn't seem... or, or... I don't know, maybe he stores them in a box and then takes them out and uses them. I don't know whether they're just stored on his person, but um, it also didn't seem like he was using one up to do the surgery. It seems like he can either use them up, burn them as if allomantic metals to accomplish something else, or he can refer to the information in them. Mm -hmm. It's almost as though he had like a vast library, but he could also burn some of the books in it to get superpowers, is the way that it (laughs) feels right now. (laughs) <laughs> which is kind of fucked uh mm-hmm. <laughs> especially because the way that Sazed has talked about like the, all the things he knows about like dead religions it definitely feels like he's one of the only people who remembers these things mm-hmm. so it's very like it's not just like he's burning books in a library but like he's burning uh you know priceless copies. <laughs> one-of-a-kind manuscripts from thousands of years ago mm-hmm. um and he just destroyed some of that to save Vin's life, so he must think Vin is really irreplaceable.
1: Um, she is in my heart.
2: <laughs> yeah. Um, oh, he's also tired out, by the way, by yeah. all of this. I mean, that doesn't have to be a magic thing. Doing surgery's fucking tiring. Yeah. Um, but <laughs> and running. <laughs> yeah. Um, How did he get up on top of the palace? He used up an entire metal mind, whatever the fuck that means. <laughs> <sighs> I definitely, There's you know, also- look forward. I look forward to finding out more about what a metal mind is and and how Sazed has access to this knowledge. Um, it does seem cool.
0: There's also the part where Lester thinks that Sazed is an inquisitor for a minute <laughs> 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 because he's. Like- <clears throat> Is like who is it, and Lester Bourne's is like a big man robe, and everyone's like, "Oh fuck, it's an inquisitor," <laughs> but it's just Satan.
2: Yeah. Uh, um. Shall I
0: read uh, our our chapter headers for this week? Uh.
2: Well, I want to just say one last thing about like the end of this chapter, which is the end of part two. Uh. The last line is very snappy. Uh, you know, Dachshund asks Kelsier, like, if this stunt that he just pulled, trying to find out information about the Lord Ruler, is it worth it? I don't know, Kelsier said honestly. He turned to Dachson, meeting his friend's eyes. Ask me once we know whether or not Vin will live. Which is like... Obviously very cool, like big dramatic ending, but also of course Vin is gonna fucking live. <laughs> but also, I know that.
0: You turn the page, chapter sixteen starts when Vin awoke.
2: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Also, like what the like what a what a wild thing for Kelsier to say, honestly, because it doesn't seem to me like he gained anything from this trip. Even if she book. does live. They
0: got an ancient book.
2: They weren't trying to steal the book. It was a totally side benefit. The mission, which was to find out more about how to kill the Lord Ruler, completely failed. (laughs) Or or to find what he was hiding in that room. That completely failed.
0: Well, they found out that there was a hut. Mm
2: -hmm. I I suppose. Um, And an Inquisitor. I think what I will say is that at this moment in time, I am with uh and, and other members of the crew in being extremely skeptical of Kelsier's obsession with learning information about the Lord Ruler.
3: Yeah.
2: Um I mean I get that he is their enemy and they want to know their enemy, um, but uh it feels like a bit of an impossible task, but I guess so is everything else they're trying to do.
0: Yeah.
2: Um okay I'm good to do the um, All right. the epigraphs? Yeah. Whatever. Chapter
0: 12. What would it be like if every nation, from the Isles in the South to the Terrace Hills in the North, were united under a single government? What wonders could be achieved? What progress could be made if mankind were to permanently set aside its squabblings and join together? It's too much, I suppose, to even hope for. A single unified empire of man? It could never happen. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not the Lord Ruler. <laughs> Chapter 13. I know I shouldn't let a simple Pac-Man disturb me. However, he is from Terrace, where the prophecies originated. If ever anyone could spot a fraud, would it not be he? Nevertheless, I continue my trek, going where the scribbled auguries proclaim I will meet my destiny. Walking, feeling Rashek's eyes on my back. Jealous, mocking, hating. Chapter 14. Love this hater.
3: <laughs>
0: <laughs> sometimes I wonder if I'm going bad. Perhaps it's due to the pressure of knowing that I must somehow bear the burden of an entire world. Perhaps it is caused by the death I have seen, the friends I've lost, the friends I've been forced to kill. Either way, I sometimes see shadows following me, dark creatures I don't understand or wish to understand. Are they perhaps some figment of my overtaxed mind? Chapter 15. I don't know why Quan betrayed me. Even still, this event haunts my thoughts. He was the one who discovered me. He was the Terrace philosopher who first called me the hero of ages. It seems ironically surreal that now, after his long struggle to convince his colleagues, he's the only major Terrace holy man to preach against my reign.
1: My reign is an interesting uh choice of words here.
2: Yeah, because this guy's the Lord ruler and he's trying to conquer the world and turn it into a single, perhaps final, empire. <laughs> Oh, it would never work. It would never work. <laughs> uh,
1: I like this Rashik guy. I love that he's just hanging out, with- just staring at the back of this guy's
0: head twenty four seven as they're walking up, like on their journey, just like
1: it's it's almost like like Draco Malfoy energy of like. <laughs> You're hanging out with the Chosen One. You're, like, this is the guy who everybody's like, oh, he's gonna save the world from the evil... And you're
0: just like, looks a bit shit. And-
3: <laughs> <laughs>
1: Fucking yeah. asshole. Yeah. This guy's Benry from half VR. <laughs> <laughs>
3: yeah,
0: just some fun, uh... Fun little, uh, blurbs there.
2: I am interested, uh, in... This um, idea of Terrace philosophy slash theology. Quan mm-hmm. is described as both a philosopher and a holy man. Yeah. And Terrace culture is the source of these prophecies that describe the idea of the hero of ages. Um,
1: we see Terrace culture now as like preserving ancient religions.
2: Yeah, and I I think the thing that is particularly interesting to me is the clear sense that there are different terrorist philosophers with different perspectives on these prophecies and, like, that proclaiming this guy as the hero of ages is some kind of political act that someone might regret and go back on. Mm -hmm. Um, I think that's interesting. Like, I think that often the way that fantasy narratives construct the idea of a chosen one who will fulfill a prophecy uh there is a sense of kind of total inevitability about that right Mm. like within a narrative you know I'm not saying that like false chosen ones never happen in fiction Um, that certainly happens um but uh what I'm saying is that this I feel like there's a hint of this narrative being interested in not just the idea of someone who Claims to be the Chosen One, but is not. But the idea of why people might believe that, you know? Yeah. Um, It's not just about people, like, understanding the truth more or less. It's about, like, what does it mean politically to support this hero, Mm -hmm. I guess. We didn't Um,
0: point it out also during the summary, but the book that they stole from the Lord Ruler is written in Clenny, the language of Clenium, which is the uh city state that this um writer is from. We mentioned last yeah. week that uh he, m- he mentions Clenium, the great
3: city.
1: Oh, okay. Cool. He
2: mentions that uh yeah, he mentions that that Rashek hates the city of Clenium and its court, even though he's never been there. Mm-hmm. He's a hater. <sighs> he truly is. Big respect to Rashek the hater. <laughs> <laughs> um
1: but yeah, I think that's going to do it for part two of Mistmore and the Final Empire. <clears throat> part two of what? Like four, five, five. Part yeah, five, five is very short, though. It looks like five
0: is like four chapters long. But so this ends our time with part one, the Survivor of Hathsin. Next week we will begin with part two, Rebels Beneath the Sky. No, no, we Ash. just finished
1: part two. What we just finished rebels beneath the sky of ass, oh, okay. and now we're did I say a sky of ass? <laughs> <laughs> now we're starting
0: part three, children of a bleeding
2: sun.
1: Um, on that Now that
2: sky is fucking ass. <laughs>
1: <laughs> part three is ten chapters. Um, I feel like we have. Uh, I looked at the lengths of the chapters, and I feel like we have two choices. We could cover it in three episodes, or if we wanted to push it, we could cover it in two episodes those might be kind of long episodes but we could do that i think
2: i guess i lean a little bit toward doing more chapters uh per episode um but i suppose i don't know um i am gonna be traveling yeah maybe at the end of next week um but not for that long i don't know um yeah. I, I think I still support the idea I just proposed, but I'm open to your suggestions
1: if if we do if we do it in three episodes, we have to read four chapters next time, and if we do it in two episodes, we have to read five chapters for next time. So um,
0: I'm fine doing five chapters.
1: Let's do five chapters. Let's do five. All right. So we'll read sixteen, seventeen, eighteen, nineteen, twenty. Um nice. These have short summaries on Coppermine, and I remember at least two of these chapters being pretty short in my audiobook, so um shouldn't be too bad.
2: Nice.
0: <clears throat> Mark, where can people find you online?
2: You can find me on Twitter at Char Asnablunt, and you can find my other podcast, Higgledy Piggledy Whale Statements, at abnormalmapping.com slash whale. It's a Moby Dick podcast. Uh, you find me on Twitter, at a
1: underscore coffee, all the other podcasts at exportodd.io. Um That's got a list there of like links to all the free feeds, or you can give us a dollar a month and get access to many of the podcasts uh, a week early. Um, or you can give us five dollars a month and listen to Pop Town Funk, uh, a podcast where Nora and I are going to be exploring the Funko Media Canon. <laughs> yes, we were constructing the Funko Media Canon.
0: Uh-huh. By way of randomly rolling Funkos and then watching movies associated with them, or reading books, playing video games, listening to music. Yeah. I guess. I have no any- intention of like listening to a Kiss album, for example. But are like
1: Brandon Sanderson Funko Pops. No, we would know. I'm, I'm just gonna search Kelsey or Funko Pop. Just gonna look. The closest we have so far is his appearance in. These are custom uh, Fortnite.
0: Yes, of course they are. Um...
1: I guess I could yeah. check for a Kaladin Stormblast Funko, but... There was one afraid.
0: on the page. You were just long. Okay. Okay. Um, much like our Ruby Funkos, it has a separate eye color. And mm. Blue eyes. Um, <sighs> you can find me on Twitter at neither nor. Find stuff I do at Uh Subscribe to our Patreon at $5 and you'll get Town Funk. Subscribe at any level. And you'll get these episodes a week early. Yep. Yeah as well as other stuff what a deal what a deal uh very soon attention duelists will return and uh oh hell yeah it's almost time for a, a new year which means new year new year <laughs> <laughs> um, we will be continuing the war in our stars in january um we we'll be reading jedi search which is the first of the jedi academy trilogy yeah um Beyond
1: that. Uh, thanks, Brandon. Thanks, Brandon. Thanks, Brandon. You, uh, you know what? I said that with a little more um, venom than I meant it to. Thanks, Brandon. Venom. <laughs> <laughs>